overnight, Iranian forces in Syria launched at least 20 rockets on Israeli positions. Our instant index tonight begins with a big headline, the end of the world. The government and witnesses there say a hotel and other buildings have collapsed after a magnitude 6.4 earthquake. Welcome to this weekend's message in our series on Revelation. What I'd like you to do is grab your Bibles, your electronic Bibles, and turn open to the book of Revelation if you do that. And just to impress you, I thought I'd use my iPhone Bible. How many of you, how many of you regularly use one on the weekend? Let me see your hands. It's like a concert. Look at all those go up there. It's awesome. Last service, too. Good job. Um, just don't text. I mean, it's the Bible, right? You're not FaceTime, you're not Googling, you're... Okay, all right. We're going to do something unique uh, this morning. We're actually going to go behind the scenes in God's Word. He's going to allow us to peek behind the curtain of time. We're actually going to observe a battle that's been taking place before man ever took his first breath on earth. And it's a battle that'll end someday. And it's a battle that every one of us is subject to, that is, we are all in this battle, and it rages around us, and it affects us, and we don't oftentimes even realize it. So a lot of the imagery, a lot of language that we're gonna look at this morning is gonna seem very strange, very imaginative, and yet what it's meant to convey to us is very true and very powerful. So with that said, let's get started. Revelation chapter 12, verse one. So a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. So who is this woman? Most Bible scholars agree the woman is Israel, personified, obviously, in Mary, who is going to give birth to a son. We'll talk about that in a few moments. We say, well, how do you know the woman is Israel? particularly the faithful remnant of Israel throughout all times that has honored God and walked with God. Well, there's a clue given to us when it talks about the sun, the moon, the 12 stars. It harkens back to a dream that Joseph had in Genesis chapter 37. He said, I had another dream, and this time the sun, moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father, as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? Well, Jacob, actually, you did. When Joseph finally ascended to being the second most powerful man in the world, vice president of Egypt, remember his brothers came to get food because of the great famine, and they bowed before him. Later on, his father's brought down in a cart, and they will live there in Egypt, and they will become a great nation, even within Egypt itself. And the 12 brothers will become the 12 heads of the 12 tribes of Israel, and God will bless the 12 tribes of Israel, and through them, God is going to bring a savior to the world. It's a promise that God made to Abraham 
That's a promise that God keeps to Abraham. So that gives us uh, the beginning. Now let's look at verse three. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns and seven crowns on its heads. Read Daniel chapter seven to get more understanding of that. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. Now, who's the dragon? Well, fortunately, the text answers it for us in verse 9. It says, the great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil. So now we know who the dragon is that's being portrayed in this passage of Scripture. The ten horns, the ten crowns talk about his power, all right, his completeness of power, so to speak. And by the way, his power is in his ability to deceive. He's not all-powerful as God is. But the question that comes to our mind is, what is this scene of? And this seems to be the primordial battle that was waged in heaven before man ever took a breath. When Satan, the greatest angel that God had created, um, rebelled against God and led an uprising and took with him a third of the stars, so that is the third of the angels that he duped into following him, and are what we think of now in terms of the demonic world. And so that's what's being described here. And interesting enough, in the book of Isaiah, uh, we read a passage of scripture that tells us that in Isaiah 27, 1, that the Lord will take his terrible swift sword one day and punish Leviathan, the swiftly moving serpent, coiling, writhing serpent. He will kill the dragon of the sea. So there's going to be a culmination to this battle. Now, we know that Satan hates God and he hates anything to do with God. Having been banished, so to speak, from his role and position, he now attacks everything that has anything to do with God, and particularly God's creation itself. And so he attacks Adam and Eve, and through deception, leads them to rebellion against God. Thinks he's won the day until he finds out that God knew it was going to happen, and God has already planned to reconcile man to himself through his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so now Satan shows up at the birth of Christ. Verse 5. She, now specifically Mary, but Israel in concept, gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter, and her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. So how do you know that that's Jesus? Well, there are other passages of Scripture that speak to Jesus as one who will rule with a scepter. One of them is found in Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. It says, The king proclaims the Lord's decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son, Today I have become your father. Only ask and I will give you the nations as your inheritance. The whole earth is your possession. You will break them with an iron rod and smash them like clay pots. If you go to Hebrews, the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5, you hear these words, For God never said to any angel what he said to Jesus, You are my son. Today I have become your father. God also said, I will be his father and he will be my son. And when he brought his supreme son into the world, God said, let all of God's angels worship him. Regarding the angels, he says, he sends his angels like the winds, his servants like flames of fire. But to the son, he says, your throne, O God, endures forever and ever. Your rule with a scepter of, you rule with a scepter of justice. And we'll see it later on in Revelation 19. We have that whole concept again. 
And in verse 5 of this passage, we have this sweep of the Gospels. I mean, you have the whole life of Jesus in one verse. He was born, he died, seemed like Satan won. Satan lost because he was risen from the dead, and he was caught up to the Father again in the ascension. So Satan can't touch the Son of God. So now look what he does, verse 6. It says, the woman fled, that's Israel, the remnant, fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. This is the latter half of the great, known as the Great Tribulation. We talked about it last weekend. If you missed it, you can go online and follow up on it. But there God seems to protect and preserve her. It is a picture that harkens all the way back to the Exodus story. When God delivers the people out of Egypt, he takes them into the wilderness where he protects them from the attack of the Egyptians. Now watch what happens in verse 7. When war, now we're, oftentimes in prophecy you go back and forth in in the narrative, in the story. So now we're kind of back again. Verse 7, then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels, Michael being one of the great angels that stands before God, and Daniel chapter 12 tells us that he's the angel of Israel. He's the protector of Israel. So if you've ever wondered how it is that unlike any other nation on earth, Israel has survived all these years. The only ancient nation to survive. How it is they have faced terrible odds, even in recent history, and survived I believe in part is because they got Michael on their side. God has assigned him and empowered him to protect them. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. So one of the questions is, when did that all happen? Some people say, well, it happened back there in verse 3 and 4, you know, this, this event before man was even created. Others say, no, it happened when Jesus was on earth, when he, when he demonstrated the kingdom, the power of the kingdom of God, when he healed people, delivered them from demons, you know, he raised them to life again in his death and his resurrection. It's an interesting passage in Luke chapter 10 where Jesus sends out his disciples and he says, minister in my name. And they come back and they say, Lord, even the demons had to obey us when we used your name. And in Luke chapter 10, verse 18, Jesus responds and said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And then there's some scholars say, nope, it's yet a future battle to be fought. I don't know when it's going to happen. All I know is that Christ is victorious. Satan is not. But he's going to do everything he can to try to defeat God's people and God's work. That brings us back again to verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. We saw that in Jesus in the Gospels. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. Now, verse 11 is important. They, meaning those that he's pursuing, they triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb. That means we all have victory in Christ. Christ died our death so we can live his life. Put your faith in Christ, you have victory over the evil one. He can't can't accuse you. He can try, but like a prosecutor, he has has no power. He he can't, the power's been taken away from him because the, uh, the crime has been paid for. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, that is, These folks didn't shy away. They stood 
for their belief in Christ, they did not deny Christ. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. In other words, they were even willing to die for Christ. And remember, this was written originally to the first century believers. In Revelation chapter 2, we hear about a church in Pergamum, and it's mentioned one of the martyrs there, his name is Antipas, who died for Christ. He didn't count his life worthy to be saved. He was willing to die for Christ. Verse 12, Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell, on the, who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. And I would suggest to you that any reading of modern-day headlines, watching what's going on in our world, what's been taking place, what's going on now, you can't help but sense, yeah, Satan's filled with fury. How else do you explain the insanity, the evil that's going on in our world today? There's a demonic realm behind it. Daniel teaches us that. Paul teaches us that. And, you know, Satan's called the god of this world system, so to speak. And he's angry. He's angry at God. He's angry at anything that has to do with God. And we're in the crosshairs. Now, come back, if you will, to verse 13. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. So we're picking up the story again. Verse 14. The woman was given two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness where she would be taken care of for a time, times and half a time out of the serpent's reach. So this is that second half that we talked about called the Great Tribulation. And he's after her, he's after God's people, the faithful remnant. He's trying to destroy them. Now it doesn't mean they have literal wings they can fly or the helicopters and, you know, and cargo planes are picking them up and taking them to some remote hidden place in the desert. That's not what's being pictured here. The eagle's wings has to do with God's swiftness, God's protection. In fact, again, thinking about Israel, when it went into the wilderness from Egypt, we read words, for instance, in Exodus chapter 19, verse 4, it says, I took you up on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 10, in a desert land he found him, like an eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over its young, that spreads its wings to catch them and carries them in its pinions. Isaiah 40, 31, a lot of people like to quote that verse, but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. So God is going to protect his people. What's he going to protect them from? Look at verse 15. Then from his mouth, the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. Well, what is this torrent? What's this flood he's sending? It's a flood of deceit, a flood of delusion. A flood of lies. Like I said, that's his power. That's his capacity. He's the master at lying. The Bible said he's the father of lies. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 that he masquerades himself in light. He's very appealing. He knows how to mix the truth with untruth and make it seem like the truth. So he's trying to deceive them. But it says in verse 16, but the earth helped the woman by opening his mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon has spewed out of his mouth. There's a story in the Bible where some Israelites rebelled against Moses, uh, Korah, and those who followed him. They tried to deceive the people into going back to Egypt with them, and it says the ground opened up and swallowed them. So God protects them from the deception. Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 24 that in the very end times, those last seven years, especially that last period, 
that there be so much deception in the world, so many lies in the world, that even those who know God would be deceived if he hadn't shut the time down or cut the time short. So Satan's power to deceive is, is great. And he has so many ways to do it, so many ways to do it. And even as I speak this, I think about our, our youth, I think about our, our kids, our junior highs, our senior high kids, our college students, and the amount of deception that's thrown at them in all kinds of forms and all kinds of ways to draw them away from God and away from the truth. What a challenge it is for you as parents and grandparents and for our leaders to help our kids stay focused on what the truth is. Now verse 17. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring. I believe that's in reference to Gentile believers. Those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. So anybody who's holding fast to Jesus, following God's word, has their crosshairs on them, the enemy wants them. Now, if you think this is all about the future, we don't have to worry about now, you are deceived. Because it's all going on right now. It's all going on right now. Now, if you thought that was strange, are you still with me? All right, let's go to something even stranger, chapter 13, all right? Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? I am, all right? You're gonna be blessed. Chapter 13, verse one. It says, the dragon stood on the shore of the sea. Again, it's all very metaphorical. And I saw a beast coming out of the sea. Now, who's the beast? We'll see later on. This is the Antichrist, okay? Now, when, when I say beast, right away, dragon and beast so far just seem ugly, scary, horrific, right? But what's being described there is their attitude, their spirit. The actual, I mean, Satan masquerades as an angel of light. It's very attractive. Forget about the pitchfork and, the, you know, the tail and all that stuff. All right? The Antichrist, who I believe is a real person, a, a personality that will show up, the Antichrist is going to be anything but a beast in terms of appearance and style. The Antichrist will seem like the Messiah. A false Messiah, but a Messiah nonetheless. Be very appealing. Very appealing, very powerful, very humble in a sense. Until halfway through the seven-year period, according to Daniel, he reveals himself. And then the beast starts to come out. Go back to the passage of Scripture with me. He had ten horns, seven heads, read Daniel 7, with ten crowns on his horns and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard. It had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. In other words, we've already seen that the Bible, Daniel especially, uses the imagery of animals to describe various nations. The Antichrist will have the power of all nations rolled up into one. Swift, powerful, cunning, all those things. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority, so he'll be very demonically possessed and demonically driven. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have a, had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. So Satan's a mimicker. He is mimicking now Christ. So just as we have the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, there's the unholy trinity of the Scripture, Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet who we'll meet very soon. So it appears this, this false Messiah died and came back to life again. Go on the passage of Scripture. Verse 3, one of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound. Fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. People worshiped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast. And they also worshiped the beast and asked, who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it? 
Verse 5. The beast was given a mouth to utter words and blasphemies and to exercise his authority for 42 months. He had opened his mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name in his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. He was given power to wage war against God's holy people and conquer them. So there's no guarantee that those who follow God are going to be protected from the evil one when he tries to kill them. They'll be kept secure in their faith, but they may have to suffer for their faith. It was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. So we know this is more than something happened in past history. This is yet to come. All whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. Whoever has ears, let him hear. If anyone is going to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with a sword, with a sword they will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. So those who first heard these words, first century believers, they would have understand, they would have had an understanding of what John's talking about here, what God's saying through John. They lived in Rome, all powerful Rome. It was the world at that time. Caesar demanded people worship him. Statues were set up in various cities across the Roman Empire where you would have to go and offer incense once a year and worship Caesar himself. So they understood this whole issue. They, they're being told by the Lord, listen, in the midst of this, this society that you're living in, hold fast, be patient, trust Christ, don't move from the orthodoxy of God's word. Now, verse 11, then I saw a second beast coming out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. It exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. So third part of the unholy trinity, now the false, the false prophet, the religious leader. Now I want to use the illustration. I am not inferring that they're the antichrist, the false prophet. Just give you an illustration. There's a tiny little country called Bhutan. Bhutan has a king, okay, and, uh, and it has a religious leader in Buddhism. Both are very powerful individuals, and together they lead that nation. So what you have here is a picture of a very powerful political figure, the Antichrist, who also has an associate who is kind of the religious leader of the day, a one-world religion. Two things. One, we all have something within us that wants someone to lead us. It's in our very nature. Secondly, we all have a need to worship. We talked about it a couple weeks ago. So we are all given toward religion. We want to worship someone greater than ourselves. And, and the world's moving toward that is what the scripture is saying to us. Verse 13, and it performed great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to the earth in full view of the people. Because of the signs, it was given power to perform on behalf of the first beast. It deceived the inhabitants of the earth. It ordered them to set up an image and honor the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. The second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. So in the first century, you had these, you had these statues of Caesar, and you had priests, right, who worked in the temples, and you had ventriloquists who seemed to be able to give a voice to the idols. So when this is being said, they contextualize it. They get it. But this is referring to more than then. It's referring to the future as well. 
Verse 16, it also forced all the people, great, small, rich, poor, free, slave, to receive a mark on their right hands and on their foreheads so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast, the number of its name. And unfortunately, the next verse is the verse most remembered in the book of Revelation. This calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast for its number is the number of a man that number is. You watch too much TV, all right? It's 666. And so people, you know, for a long time have been trying to figure out who is it. And it's all, it's been all kinds of theories. Ronald Reagan, right? Um, you know, Obama, Trump, Clinton, Putin, you know, Kissinger. I mean, on and on it goes throughout time and history. And it's all based on uh, gematria, this, this science of numbers that are associated with Hebrew letters. So take like a, an English name, they'll transliterate it to Hebrew, they try to find the numbers to see if they add up. And so there's been all kinds of theories. And it, it, that's what this boils down to, where it's a hopeless situation, okay? Because what in essence is being taught, was in essence being said here is, is six, if six kind of represents humanity, which it oftentimes does, it is, it is what appears to be the perfection of humanity versus seven, the perfection of God. And if you say, no, well, I, I've heard that Nero, Nero's name, Nero Caesar meant 666. Well, if you do the math right, it's actually 616. So the point is don't get focused on trying to figure out who the Antichrist is. Be aware that what the Antichrist will do. That's the point. The power of the Antichrist and who he's empowered by, Satan, is deception. Don't be deceived. And we are set up for deception. We are inclined toward deception. It's our very nature as human beings. We're easily duped and deceived. Our first parents were and so are we. So imagine the situation the world is in now. How easy it would be for someone to walk on the scene and don't just think of the world as America because it's not. I've been outside of this country. There are other countries, there are other worlds. And we're a minority in terms of the world population. But imagine a world that is hungry. Imagine a world that is, that is starving, that, that is being terrorized, that wants peace. Imagine a world that's divided up in all kinds of factions, all kinds of religions, and a character comes along and is able somehow politically to bring peace and to provide food and to coalesce people into a world religion that allows us all to practice our religion and forbid intolerance. It has the capacity charismatically to exude power. The world would vote for that person tomorrow. The world would vote for that person tomorrow because the world is desperate for peace. The world is def desperate for resolution. So it's not science fiction. It's what we want, what the world wants. It's what the world desires. And there's been talk of this for, for a long, long time. One world order and, you know, if we could all just get along. Now, I'll tell you what happens in a system like that. You get enough people behind you, eventually you're able to say, and those people over there, those, those Jewish followers of Christ, those Christians, really, they're the ones that have messed things up. They've misread the Bible. Let me tell you what the Bible really meant to say. They, they don't know who Jesus really is. I am the Messiah. I've demonstrated it. Look what I did. I came back from life again. 
the world would be easily deceived. A whole nation over 80 years ago was deceived into following a funny little guy with a funny little mustache who had enormous power over people. And there was nothing terribly attractive about him. But the people were in such a situation that wheelbarrows full of cash couldn't buy bread. And he played off the economy. So I'm just simply saying to you, don't think about this as just stuff that's far-fetched can't happen. Because it, it has happened, it is happening, and it will happen again. Which takes us back to something very important. I want you to go back to chapter 12 with me again. Because there we were introduced to the dragon. There we were introduced to his plans. And I want to read to you something that John wrote in another little book called 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. And I want you to listen to carefully what he says. He said, dear children, this is the last hour. I think John and Paul and the other disciples believe that Christ is coming into their time because it was so desperately wicked and evil. He says, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. You hear what he said? So Paul describes it. Daniel certainly talked about it. John believed that the Antichrist was a personality, not personalities, not a system, but a Antichrist was coming. But listen to what he says. Even now many Antichrists, small ones, have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us. That's scary to me because what it's saying is the worst antichrist of all is the one who you thought knew you, who is one of you, but has turned on you. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all you know the truth. First mention of truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, second mention of truth, but because you know it, third mention, it's inferred, and because no lie comes to the truth, fourth mention. Now, when somebody keeps saying truth, truth, truth to you, you got to wake up and pay attention, because in essence, what he's saying is that Antichrist doesn't hold the truth. He says, who is a liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. So you hear what he's saying? He's saying when somebody comes along or a system comes along and it denies the deity of Christ, that's Antichrist. And when they deny the orthodoxy of Scripture, when they want to reinterpret the Bible to accommodate the culture, that's Antichrist. In essence, what he's saying is be very narrow. Stand on the truth. Don't politicize the truth. Don't use it as a club, but base your life on the truth. And don't budge. The early church was riddled with heresy, a redefining of who Jesus was. Jesus warned the seven churches, don't compromise morally. Don't go back to your immoral ways. Don't accommodate the scriptures to somehow allow you, it's called Gnosticism, ancient religion, modernized in different forms now, to allow you to continue to practice the way you used to live. You have been bought with a price. Stand firm on the truth. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 5, he says, Be alert. In a sober mind, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. 
and the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you've suffered a little while will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. So we go back to Revelation 12 and what do we hear him saying over and over again? Stand firm on the faith. Keep your testimony for Christ. Don't let the threats budge or move you off the dime. So what does this mean for everyday life? I'm just telling you that in everyday life, this is happening all around us right now. This past week, I had the privilege of being in um, India, and I was in Madurai, and I was with our TTI Global Partner there. I was training some pastors who represent about 689 churches. And so it's a it's very huge opportunity for us, by God's grace, to influence them, because they don't get much training, much teaching. And so they're always thankful for you for making me available and, and we, you know, we provide the books and everything that's been translated to them and it's, it's blessing them. And while I was there, our, our partner who's overseeing what we call the Wooddale Group, I just wish they called themselves the followers of Jesus, but they like the identification with the Wooddalers, right? So you're gonna meet a lot of people in heaven, they're gonna go, thank you, and you go, who, what? He was with me and he got a text. He got a text from northern um, India from a, a village, he had the pictures, but I'm not gonna show you the pictures of the folks, where there were six brand new believers in Christ who'd been arrested by village leaders because of having received Christ and because of their belief in the Bible. And they were told to recant, to turn away, back away from their faith, and if they didn't, they might be harmed as a result. Well, three, I, the text kept coming, three denied Jesus. They didn't want anything bad to happen. They just denied Jesus and went back to their old religion. But the other three said, you can beat us, you can kill us, but we are not going to deny Christ. He's got this in his text. So we were praying and praying and praying because they had a little tribunal. And I was praying that verse of scripture, you know, where Jesus said, and, you know, and when you have to stand before the authorities, I, don't worry, I'll give you the words. He's praying that for them. I was praying that God would confuse their accusers. We got another text back about the day before I left, um, and what we heard was there was confusion amongst the accusers, some factions. The result was no harm came near them, but they did make a decision. Here was their decision. You can stay in this village, but you cannot buy and you cannot sell. You cannot buy and you cannot sell, and nobody is to associate with you. Folks, we just read about that. And it's not just something that's way out there in the future someplace. It's happening right now all around the world to those who follow Jesus. You have a leader in China now who's saying, take the picture of Jesus out of the churches, put my picture up. Because I need to control the masses. I need to control the people. I cannot have another rival. In one way or another, it, it's been happening and it's still happening today. So I also heard then a story about a young man who had accepted Christ in a, in a village. And these people are poor. They live in one-room homes. They don't have separate bedrooms. So imagine this young adult, right? He's, he's just accepted Christ, and he's got a Bible, and he's trying to read his Bible in secret because he doesn't want to deal with being persecuted if he's found out. But in a one-room home, it's really hard to do anything in secret. And he's found out 
His family is enraged with him. They're angry at him, and they tell other family members, and soon the whole village hears about it, and he is brought before the tribunal, the village council. They're so angry at him because of his conviction about who Jesus is that they say to him, you will drink this cup of poison. They put the poison in his hands. And by the way, just so you know, right now in a couple of countries, I'm I'm not going to name countries, so you should figure it out by now. Christians are being poisoned. Their water is being poisoned in various villages by a militant group, and the government's looking the other way because the government endorses it. So he's he's given a cup of poison. Remember, he's a young adult, right? So what do I do with this? He's being told either deny Jesus or drink the poison. So he's, he's sitting there. He's got the crowd around him. He's got the tribunal officials telling him, either you deny Christ, you drink that poison and die. They take his Bible while he's doing it. They tear it into pieces and they're throwing it into the fire. And one of the leaflets that's partially burned like an ash comes back and rests on his arm. And it's a portion out of Mark chapter 16 that is disputed by scholars because we're not sure it's part of the original text because it doesn't appear in all the manuscripts. But a portion of that passage comes out, settles on his arm, all right? And the passage that settles on his arm are the words that say, and when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. And he drinks it. It's what he needed, and he drinks it. And he lives. Now, I told Daniel, I said, Daniel, when I tell people back home, there are some of them they are going to sit there and go, are you sure that's a true story? And I said, even me hearing that, I'm just, I, just, I said, the skeptic in me wants to go, are you, Daniel, is that true? And I'll, Daniel looked at me and he said, he said, you know, practical people have a hard time believing these things, but people who really know God know it's true. And I said, I believe. <laughs> but listen, Here's the evidence. Here's how I can prove to you the story's true. When they saw him drink the poison and it had no effect on him, his family came to Christ and most of the village did. So that story, that story has been multiplied in other places too. It's not just there that it happened. We're seeing this happen in places, people having visions and dreams of Christ. God is at work. But I'm here to tell you, this book of Revelation is not just about the future. The things that are described there are being experienced in the world today. But thank God for the men and women, young and old alike, who when it comes down to it, take their stand for Christ. So many of them have nothing to lose anyway. Unlike us, they have not been duped by materialism and wealth and things. There's much more that they have to give up, family and friendship, job and security, when they stand for Christ. Is there anything you wouldn't give up to stand for Christ? Or do you see him as your cornerstone? Let's stand. And let's pray. And then I want to encourage you to stay as we sing a song of commitment to Christ, our cornerstone. Lord. Thank you so much for declaring and revealing to us your truth. We humble ourselves before that. We refuse to be arrogant. We don't deserve it. And in this world, Lord, the only reason you leave us here is to be a lighthouse for you, for you're willing that none should perish but come to eternal life. 
God, you've not given us the truth to use as a club, but as a means to living out the Christ's life. So that those whose hearts are tender, whom you are working on, will respond to you. May we not lose sight, Lord, of how vital it is for us to live and stand on the truth. In Jesus' name.